welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. This week's episode features Sarah Willersdorf. She's a managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Joan Sutton. She is the CEO and founding partner of 707 Flora. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Oh, wait. This isn't Jody. You're probably expecting Jody's voice. So let me introduce myself. My name is Carrie Channing. I am the producer here at Where Brains Meet Beauty. And I'm typically behind the scenes, but today Jody has pulled me on the podcast and I'm super excited to be here. Carrie, I'm so happy that I'm not all alone anymore. <laughs> so Jody knows, but I'll tell our listeners this is the second time that I have podcasted. And the first time she tricked me into being on the podcast. So this one was more pre planned, but I don't have quite the hosting chops as Jody, but I'm here. And I'm excited and we want to give you a little intro to kind of welcome you to this episode because there's more to talk about. Okay, but before we talk about Sarah, who's my amazing guest, let's talk about you because it's been a really long time since you've been on the show. So our listeners need to know that you're very talented and you're a very accomplished dancer. Um, And if anyone out there is a marvelous Mrs. Maisel fan, that means you've seen Carrie dance on the show. (laughs) Yes, guilty. Um, and Jody is always the most supportive, and it's really fun because I get to have many different hats. And, you know, there are lots of skills that come from being a dancer and that kind of discipline that trickle into helping with a creative agency and run a podcast. And I think that all of our guests really do prove that as well. Like, for instance, Sarah, this episode that you're about to listen to, her answer to what did you want to be when you were a kid? She wanted to be a fashion designer first, then she wanted to be a film director, then she got into business, and then, as you'll know by listening to the episode, she landed on uh, being a consultant for luxury goods. So the career path that's not linear sometimes works itself out at the end and becomes that much more rich. So what I love about Sarah, and um, you know, I'm a super fan of LinkedIn is that I met her via LinkedIn. And, you know, I I used to poo-poo LinkedIn and think it was super annoying. But, um, you know, it's where my people are, right? Our podcast listeners are active on LinkedIn and um, our industry is active on LinkedIn. Um, So I just met her by randomly connecting with her one day, which I think is so cool. Do you happen to remember what drew you to wanting to link up? Yeah, because I'm like so fascinated by that role of like a consulting group and like I'm super fascinated by people on the finance side of this industry and it's not like a side of um like a career that I ever imagined for myself but I think it's I sort of missed my calling a little bit so um you know I'm I'm kind of like career curious do you feel like there's a bit of mystery there like consultant is such a uh, wide, vague term. Is that, is that where your curiosity comes from? Um, well, you know, I think at Base Beauty, we're, in many ways, we're consultants. We just don't like market ourselves that way. Um, but, you know, I, I just love the fact that Sarah's clients 
um, go the long term with her and her team, right? They're there for the long haul to be able to grow the business. And they look to her and her team for like the guidance and advice because it's kind of impossible to do this stuff alone, right? You really do need other partners. So um, I, I love those long-term relationships. You know, it's what I strive for at my agency as well. Um, and, you know, Boston Consulting Group's huge, right? So it's just so great to um, meet someone who's on the team. And, you know, as a reminder to myself, as I am a recovering um, perfectionist and someone who's been troubled by self-doubt, like the people on the um, on the inside of these organizations are just like you and me, right? You know, she has, you know, her kids at home and she makes them dinner and, you know, um, goes to the gym just like me. And um, she's not a, a robot, right? She's a human being. It's funny you say that um, in the episode, Sarah really does emphasize the importance of the relationships and the people. And I guess that goes hand in hand with consulting and how she's had the same clients um, for many, many years. Well, should we let our listeners get to know Sarah now? Let's roll episode 190. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be here with Sarah Willersdorf. She is a managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, and her focus is global head of luxury. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. So, Sarah, I'm going to start with my favorite question. When you were a kid and someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I actually think it depends on probably what age you asked me. Um, I'd say... And as context, I grew up in Australia. So, um, you know, uh, I didn't, I I live in New York City now, but did not grow up in New York City. So I think from about eight years old till probably 12, if you'd asked me that, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Um, I would sketch out designs. I would sew and bedazzle. I don't know if you remember what bedazzling was, but bedazzle clothes for my, uh, for my dolls and toys. And I think we had pound puppies back then. Probably a lot of your audience don't even know what they are. Um, and so I sort of was very focused on that. And if you can imagine, I'm a I'm a child of the generation who watched Heathers and 90210 and Star Wars. And so you can only imagine the fashions that we came up with. Um, and then I think in my teens, I actually spent a number of years wanting to be a, a film director. And it was a time when I think there were a couple of really prominent female directors coming, you know, be, becoming more no, notorious. So if I think about Jane Campion, I think about Nancy Myers, some of these people, I actually loved that they were women dominating in, in pretty male, predominantly male industries uh, and just great storytellers. And I always loved the notion of hearing stories, telling stories. Um, And then obviously I moved very far away from both, (laughs) maybe not the first, but I moved quite far away from both of those things. Um, And I think towards the end of probably high school, I started thinking more about business. And I know business is such an all-encompassing term, but um, my father was a huge advocate of, of girls having really strong math and science educations. Um, And so he would focused me quite heavily on math and science, and they were sort of uh, strong suits for me. So I think it was only in the later years that I started thinking about things that were maybe a bit more business uh, business savvy. But certainly when I was a kid, that was not what I was thinking of. 
Well, we must be around the same age because Bedazzled was like everything was Bedazzled. I had my own Bedazzler. I bought, you know, Bedazzled clothes that were pre, pre-Bedazzled. I think my mom Bedazzled things for me that weren't ever intended to have rhinestones on them. And for anyone who has no idea what we're talking about, there was a device that you could buy. You could buy loose rhinestones and this kind of like stamp almost, like stapler stamp that has the, the rhinestone um closures, I guess. And you would put the closure on the bottom of the apparel, the rhinestone on top, and you'd squeeze it together. And it would basically like staple almost the uh, rhinestone to your apparel. Um, So that was very important. And 90210 was like so, so, so important to me, Sarah. This is like, this is my everything. We love this show. It was my social life. It was my entertainment. It was incredible. I know, but it's really sad. I remember, I mean, very sad for lots of reasons. When Luke Perry passed away, I was talking to my team. We were at a dinner pre-COVID. Um, and I was talking, I was like, guys, I can't believe Luke Perry. And someone's like, who is it? And I said, it's from Beverly Hills 90210. And they're like, is he? And then another kid's like, oh, no, no, I know who it is. It's the dad. It's the, um, it's the dad from um, Riverdale. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, do you really, does no one know? I made everyone watch like the difference between Jason Priestley's role Luke Perry's role to try. (laughs) And they still were looking at me like, oh my God. And that was the day I realized, wow, we're really, I'm old now. Well, you know, I, I love that show because I actually do use it as like a point of reference for like my personal style. So, um, you know, like Jenny Garth's character with like the little floral dresses, a little jacket on top and like the um, combat boots and the socks. Like that to me is like the best. Like that, that's kind of like what I aspire to be on a daily basis. And I don't feel like, like it's dated. I feel like it's actually completely relevant still. Yeah. Yeah. You get old enough. Everything comes back is what I've learned. <laughs> Although you're not supposed to wear it again if you were there for the first time. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the old rule. But, um, you know, times are changing. So, um, you know, I want to talk to you about our industry because, you know, this podcast is like such a way for me to connect with people. And um, thankfully, I have this during this, um, you know, pandemic time period where we're not together. And um, I've been going to events, you know, like the virtual events in our industry. And I'm curious, like, are these still important to you? Like I saw emails like Women's Wear Daily is coming up in May, PCPC is coming up in May. Um, are, are these things that are still important in your networking toolbox? Yeah, I think it's tricky. There are pros and cons. So we have also done a lot of virtual events and I've spoken at a lot of virtual events. Um, I honestly think there are some events that you want to have in person because actually what the beauty of those events is the uh, ability to network and collaborate and have side conversations. As you know, the most important conversations are not always happening in the plenary. You know, they're happening on the side. Um, So I would expect that people were anxious to get back to some of them in person. Having said that, I think pre-COVID, we had too many of these events, right? There were too many. We don't need to have as many as that. So I think, I hope post-COVID that it becomes more a blend and we, the big important ones become more meaningful because you're connecting and collaborating and, and, and doing business at the same time. And maybe some of the smaller ones where we don't need to travel um, can remain on on you know, virtual or on Zoom or or whatever forum. I also think there is something nice about the ability to record these things and know that they can be on demand and and viewed by people 
Uh, I think it's made a lot of the information a lot more democratic. And so it's not just the senior people shipping off to these conferences. It's actually everyone in your organization can hear and be a part of it, which I actually think is something that I hope stays. I love that insight because I was just thinking to myself, um, I signed up for the Women's Wear Daily virtual event, which is next month. And I think it was like, because I'm a supplier, you know, don't forget I'm a vendor because I'm an agency. I'm not a brand. So the pricing is different. So it was like, I don't know, $399 for me to attend this virtual event. But if I went to the real in life person, it's like $3,000, $4,000 for me to attend. Right. So like it, having these things virtual, like let's like number one, like it's a no brainer. Of course, I'll attend it virtual. Like the cost savings versus real life is amazing. But um, it opens the door to other people attending and participating and learning from um, the information. It makes it less, um, you know, what I'd say, like less elitist, you know, like less, um, like a little, a little bit um, more, I think, relevant to the way that we all want to move through business right now, which is um, more friendly, more open, more collaborative. Um, so maybe we'll end up in sort of a hybrid. So maybe, you know, next year, let's say Women's Wear Daily's event will take place in person and you and I will sit down and have lunch together or a muffin next to each other, but that it's also available for people who don't want to be in that city at that time and they can pay a rate to, um, to watch the content as well. So maybe we'll move into a, a hybrid. It will absolutely be hybrid. It will absolutely be hybrid for sure. And I think that's probably a healthier outcome, honestly, versus where we were before. So, um, you know, I'm not in um, the consulting world and I've never had a job at a place like Boston Consulting Group. So I don't even know what day to day is like for you. I mean, right now it's one twenty-three in the afternoon. So like, tell me what like the day, the morning's like, the afternoon's like. I want to understand a typical day um, in your role. Well, my day and my day, I mean, it is about my role, but I'm also a mom. Um, so it's probably those two things. And so if I take, uh, if I take today, um, I have to get up pretty early to get ahead of my family. So I typically get up pretty early. I, I try and work out. And then I actually already do an email clear in the morning to make sure nothing urgent has transpired. I work across uh, Asia and Europe as well. So sometimes there are things that are coming in over the night. Um, I find my boys wake up around seven. So from seven to eight is like feeding people and dressing people and finding lost masks, lost sweaters, you know, all those things. Um, and then after I try and drop my boys at work, uh, at school most days, even they're at school in person, thankfully. Um, and unless there's something really important. And then after that, I mean, at the moment, I'm honestly on a barrage of zoom calls as we all are, but, um, I think, you know, mine, it's a mix of uh, calls with Zoom calls with clients and also with my teams. Um, and it's and at the moment, I actually find it's almost back, to, you know, it's almost like back to back Zoom all day long with virtually no breaks. Um, but I work, you know, we work on projects for our clients. Most of our clients are either big brands or retailers. Um, typically, they're fairly urgent or high-profile projects, so the deadlines are fairly um, intense. And then I probably spend about 25% of my time doing due diligence uh, for either private equity or strategic buyers. So in those scenarios, we are doing a lot of consumer research, market studies um, on smaller brands. And so across those, so at, at most times I'd have a few, you know, anywhere from three to five teams doing different things. Um, and then as well as that, because of some of my internal roles, I'll have a number of internal meetings 
um, where we're talking about, you know, what's our intellectual property. Um, we do some collaborations on research with some different partners, so I'll have conversations with them. But I feel like in a normal day, I could tell you, you know, I'm flying here, I'm meeting there. And like right now, it's really like back-to-back -back Zooms from, from the morning till the evening, really. Do you miss the travel? I don't miss the travel. I, um, I, you know, I always try to manage my travel because my, I, I try to be a pretty hands-on mum. But um, I think it got to an unhealthy notion where we would be flying for very short meetings, long distances. And I do think some of that is not going to come back. Um, and I think, I think going forward, we will still travel, but I think it'll be much more thoughtful. And it'll be about, you know, picking a week where you're somewhere and having all your meetings instead of ad hoc, long haul travel. I mean, I miss traveling in life, but not, not for work. No. Um, having said that, I do think for long workshops, if you're doing a workshop with a senior leadership team that's four or five hours, I mean, Zoom is exhausting. And I do think for some of those longer meetings, we're much better collaborators in person. And, you know, you're, um, I guess, probably similar to, to me, where sometimes you're at the demand of the client, right? Always. You know, services business. Always, yeah. So let's, um, let's role play what we say to a client when they're asking us to come for a meeting that could be done over the phone, you know, post-COVID. And we say, you know what, this is not going to be a good use of anybody's time or resources. Um, hey, come to this meeting. It will be an hour and I need you to fly six to get here. Like, what do you say? What do you say to reassure them that the work can be done? Yeah, I mean, I pre-COVID even, if it was a less than two hour meeting, I f would often try to point out it's expensive. It's not sustainable. You don't really need me there. There's other people who can be there. I just think, uh, especially in luxury and fashion as an industry, Zoom and those things were not as well used. It was a much more in-person culture. I've seen that change now. I feel most of my clients are very savvy on Zoom now. They're used to it. So I really, I really uh, think that for unless it's a big sort of all-day workshop, or you're meeting someone for the first time, which I also think is a little better to do in person, I think you'll see a lot more continue in in Zoom, um, for sure. I or love teams, that. So, yeah, or I, teams. I think you're either a Teams <laughs> or a Zoom person. Right. I am personally a Zoom person. I get very nervous when I'm invited to these other platforms. I feel like I'm going to press the wrong button and, <laughs> you yeah. know, like... Yeah. mess something up. But um, yeah, I love doing kickoff meetings in person and I love going to the client's um, office for that so that I can like feel their vibe, their culture, see their people. Um, I, I love that. So I want to pick that up again. And then yeah, like workshops, um, you know, maybe take something that would have been four hours, but find other ways to use time together, make it two days, make it even more meaningful. That, that to me is super exciting. Um, and then I guess, um, that's probably all we really need to be in person for. Like now if we shoot content, you know, the, the client could be remote and watch, watch via remote and give feedback. Um, I feel like there's no need for them to get on a plane for that. Um, you know, the, some of these things are going to be more like personality driven, like, oh, I want to meet the superstar that's in our commercial. Okay. Well then you're going to come to this shoot. Cause that's just like a personal thing, right? That's just like a, um, a, to check a box, uh, because it's fun. But yeah, hopefully we'll all be able to manage our time a little more reasonably. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I do think it's difficult to build a rapport with someone not in person. I mean, to start a relate, it's not, it's not impossible, but to start a relationship uh, from scratch 
only on a you know on a computer screen i really think it's tough um so i i do think some of the some of the travel will come back so you've been uh, at Boston Consulting Group for 15 years, which is a really long time. I feel like in our business to be anywhere for more than like two years yeah. seems like a long time. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, what do your kids think is the coolest part about your job? <sighs> nothing, nothing. No, I'm, um, <laughs> they, it's so, it's so funny you uh, asked that. My, uh, my youngest, who's seven, just turned eight about three or four months ago, he actually made this comment because we were talking about people's jobs and different people's jobs. And he said to me, you don't really have a job, but you do work all the time on your computer and phone. And so actually, I think it's quite hard for them to grasp this, what this job is, because they're like, you know, a doctor or a policeman or an actor or a fire, you know, I think they have this specific, but if I had to think, um, so I don't know if my youngest thinks very much is cool. I think my eldest son, who is nine, um, he's at an age now where he's starting to get a little bit more curious around brands. He's very into skating and surfing. And um, and and actually, you know, I I work with brands. I know them. And, the, and I think that's more interesting to him. He thinks that's um, more exciting. But honestly, unless I start to like become a Fortnite champion or professionally snowboard or surf. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure they find a lot of the things uh, around my job because I think it's just hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp for adults sometimes when you tell people you're consultant what you actually, you know, what you're doing and what you're working on. Uh, Wait, I love this. You don't, you don't, you work, but you don't, don't have, have a job, job. But you do work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my kids love it when I'm telling them that we're working with brands that they know, like things that are around the house. Yes. Um, things that were around the house before, you know, they became a client of mine. That's super exciting to them. And then, um, you know, sometimes from like an influencer marketing perspective, um, I'm telling my daughter about like the people we're talking to. And these are people that she watches. She's 10 people she watches on YouTube. Yes. Um, so I think she sees like a little intersection between her world and my world and gets very excited. And then my son, who's 13, um, I actually, like, hire him to look at emerging platforms because, like, he's there every day, the gaming. Like, you know, the gaming is not my world. Yeah. Um, but I know the intersection with beauty is rich. Um, so he, like, he contributes. Um, yeah, And I then one day, yeah, I, I, it makes me so happy. And it gives him something to do, which is, like, when he's not playing Fortnite, he has something else to do. Um, and then one day, like last year I was talking about like, you know, what are, what is the potential? What do I do with my business? You know, like, what do, what do I want from it? And I was mentioning the options and one of them, you know, would be eventually to sell it. And he said, don't sell it. Because like, I think in his head, he's like, this is something that I might want to contribute to someday in a meaningful way. And I just thought that was so sweet. That's like, it so was such great. like a heartwarming moment. I don't know. I do notice, uh, and I talk about this with some friends. So my, I guess because of what I do, um, I encourage my kids to do certain things. And so actually, it's funny you talk about Fortnite. I held off letting my son play Fortnite for a long time. And then during the pandemic, he kept asking and kept asking. And, um, and I did like a bunch of research. But then I said to him, you need to make a case for me, to me, sorry, about why you should have, uh, uh, you should have Fortnite. So he actually did a PowerPoint presentation on like why Fortnite, why it was no worse than Roblox and those things. And so it's nothing cool about my job because, you know, we obviously communicate very often in slides, but I do think there was something uh, in that. And to your point, the fact that I know, you know, I mean, versus some of, I guess, 
versus some of their peers' parents because I know TikTok, Instagram, or Twitch, all these, I think that, I don't know if they think it's cool. Maybe they don't want me to know so much about these things, but I do think we can, you know, look at some of that. So it's a little bit the same as, as yours, I think. Uh, so you told me um, when we started our um, conversation that you wanted to be a fashion designer and then you ended up in luxury goods. So I kind of feel like you did it. <laughs> you did it from a different avenue, right? You're not des- maybe designing the apparel yourself, but you're designing the constructs that allow this to happen, yeah. right? Um, so why luxury goods? You know, like what is this, what is appealing to you about that? Um, and how did you come into that specialization? Yeah. So I think you're right. Like I always had this interest in creative and design. Um, my, actually, when I went to university, um, we, we call it university in Australia, my undergraduate degrees, I actually did fine art and finance. Um, and so the fine art world, um, was always a great interest for me. I have a tremendous respect for creators. I love being around creativity. Um, and so I had that side and then I had the finance side. And I think my, as well as encouraging an education in math and science, both my parents were huge advocates of women being independent. And women, like, always be independent, never rely on anyone else. And so I think there was probably some encouragement from their side that maybe the business side was a little bit more... uh, I would be able to look after myself a lot more going into that side than maybe in the arts. Who knows? So I think... um, I think I was looking for something that brought together the right and left brain. You know, I had a strong math and science background, but I love I, I love art. I love design. Um, a, a lot of the people I spend time with are highly creative. Um, and so actually every industry I worked in, even I, I even spent time in media, was sort of industries that had content sides or really creative sides, but very commercial sides. Um, and so I think that's how I sort of landed here. Um, Uh, I also, I mean, I love, and it's not just apparel and personal goods, but I think like the notion of very high quality, highly designed, unique, long lasting, timeless things, I sort of was always drawn to that. So I think that's the interesting side. And then more recently, it's an industry so disrupted, you know, like it's gone through so much change. I mean, moving into digital now, data and analytics. So actually it sort of has a lot of really interesting business uh, challenges and operating model changes that actually make it really fascinating, I think. So can we define luxury? Because my guess is the past five years, like it, it was probably five, five, before five years ago, is it super crystal clear how you define it? And my guess is that's evolved. Um, as someone who's helping grow brands in that sector, um, what is the box that luxury is in? How do you define it? I mean, it's much broader than it used to be. To your point, I think, well, when we look at what luxury used to stand for or the attributes that used to spike, it was more um, high quality, um, craftsmanship, unique design, and and high, it, it basically demands a high price or a high premium. And I think they were sort of the things that were really the tenets of luxury. Uh, and the craftsmanship, to be honest, is often linked to a longevity of story. You know, there's actually, it's quite hard to, in luxury, to start overnight and, and without a strong history or heritage. What we've noticed in the last five years is that this definition has broadened. And actually, the new luxury, if you like, is also about this strong emotional connection. It's about a real community. Um, sustainability is becoming more important. 
um, and then um, collaboration. So luxuries now look to to also have partnerships and collaborations for newness and, and extra creativity. So I think the definitions broadened. Also, I mean, different people have different definitions of luxury. But if you think, I even define some of the streetwear brands at lux- as luxury, and some of the Nike limited edition, you know, shoes and things as Nike. Uh, and it's not always the price that defines them, but the exclusivity is sometimes the access. It's difficult to get, you know, you have to queue. It may not, you know, you may it may only be a $100 T-shirt, but if you're having to queue or wait or because it's limited, it also is, is a form of exclusivity, I'd say. Right. So one of the parameters, I mean, I guess this is always sort of a parameter with luxury because if you're handcrafting something, you're not making billions of them, right? You're making thousands of them. Um, so that supply versus the demand is putting a pressure, which then raises the prices, right? I think um, that's right. Although there is some, I, I see some designers now kind of trying to turn that on their head. I look at what Telfer's done with their, you know, pre-ordering to try and democratize and make sure people who want this can get this. And I would still, you know, you could still, it's still a luxury item of sorts. Um and so I think there's some interesting shifts happening. Yeah, um, I'm curious, you know, I, when I think about like the how beauty, luxury beauty, what that means, um, you know, f- when I grew up, my, my guess is you saw the same ads since we were watching the same TV, luxury beauty was the woman on the private yacht in Capri with, a, with the private plane. And like that's, you know, th- these images of exclusivity, therefore, you know, um, I'm not part of it as a customer, um, is really what led the conversation. And now, like, beauty is, like, completely the opposite, and thankfully so, right? It's about being included. It's about building a community. It's about all being at the same party together, right? Um, so that's, like, the kind of the, the opposite of luxury, right? Like, the way that we knew it. Yeah, it's democratized. I think there's been a big democratization. Um, and so, uh, the, but I think there's some, you know, there's inclusivity of sorts, for sure. I think it's become more inclusive of skin color, body type, where you are in the world, like sexual orientation, all of these things. I think it's like moved along. Um, when you think about the prestige the prestige angle of beauty, um, there is still an aspirational element, even if it's through price or through um, benef- the benefits it's going to offer you. But I agree with you, it's definitely shifted and it's more complicated than I think um, some of the commercials back from probably when we grew up. Um, I actually think beauty as an industry has been like much faster to innovate in some ways uh, and test and trial different things when you think about technology and products and and other things. Um, And I think even now you see, you know, I mean, I'm sure you see all the time, there's so many new companies coming up all the time around everything and, and, you know, in skincare and color cosmetics and fragrance, um, that it's really interesting. It's a really interesting space. So um, let's talk about like 15 years, like I mentioned, is a long time. Actually, that's how long I've been running my business. So it feels like an eternity. Um, So after 15 years of being at a consulting group that's focused on these industries that are literally like constantly evolving, like every day you wake up and there's something new, right? The, the, the rules have changed. Um, what inspires you the most? If I think about what, what inspires me at work, let's say at BCG, so we, I have incredible teams. 
So still to this day, um, the caliber of people I work with and the teams they have is exceptional. They're, you know, young, smart, driven, down to earth people. And I think that is, that's just tremendous. So I think having access to that talent is just really a privilege. And at the same time, I mean, I, I get to work with the best brands in the world for typically their C-suite on some of the problems that are most, you know, the most important problems they're trying to work on. And again, we have, you know, we have the luxury of picking a problem and like just focusing on that without the other things, because I've left, I mean, I've left consulting a couple of times for operating roles. And, you know, in an operating role, a lot of your time, as it should be, is spent managing people, managing the team, fighting for budgets, these things. And I think one of the luxuries we have is we get there and we're heads down solving a particular piece and then trying to work with the organization to execute it. So I think that is still inspiring. There's obviously a frustration always in consulting that even when we're with clients a long time, and some of our clients we do work with for a very long time, um, that you do want to be around to see the execution and the, the implementation. So I think that I definitely find inspiration from. I also get a lot of energy from um, entrepreneurs. So I do spend, I spend time with a sort of, I'd say the startup or early stage community, and I'm always blown away by the energy, um, the disruption, how much people are doing with so little and the hustle. Um, and I think, uh, in lots of places in, in America, I mean, I live in New York city where there's a ton of hustle. And I think that energy of the hustle and building things from scratch is just so energizing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your wisdom. It was so great to chat with you today. Great to speak with you as well. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Sarah. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at where brains meet beauty podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.